Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you for the different gifts that you give to each one of us. But thank you most of all for the gift of Jesus Christ. And we do bless you for that. Father, as we look at the subject of Jesus as described in the epistles today, we pray that you would open our eyes to rejoice afresh in who Jesus is, that he is unique, he is the only one that we could possibly have as our saviour. We give you the glory, we pray for your Holy Spirit to illumine your word to our ears and our minds and our hearts, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been with me so far in this series, you will realise that we have worked through uh, to the point where we have seen throughout the Old Testament and the Gospels that Jesus is either prophesied or shown to be the only one who can possibly be God's chosen saviour and deliverer for mankind. In other words, the promised Messiah. And our goal is to see through each sort of chunk of the Bible that Jesus is the only one. So now uh, we've we've seen what Jesus did last time uh, and how he authenticated his deity and his role as the promised Messiah. There have been many counterfeits, but I would suggest he is the only genuine candidate for the title. And today we turn our attention to Acts and mainly the Epistles. In other words, the church era, the era that we're living in. And I guess here we are really dealing with the aftermath of what Jesus has done for us during his time on earth. He has now died on the cross for our sins. He has now been resurrected from the dead. So his work for salvation has been accomplished. But Jesus is not inactive now. And we still need to see how the the writers of the early church, uh, as they wrote scripture, viewed him so that we can be further assured that Jesus is the only one who can save us as God's plan for the ages is outworked. And the epistles are where we have most of uh, our doctrine in the New Testament regarding our faith uh, for the church. So they are crucially important to confirm the truth about Jesus. And there are so many glorious passages to consider. Um, If I put them all in, we wouldn't have lunch today. Um, So I've left out some great ones, for which I apologise. But what we will look at today, I believe, are enough to show us the richness of our salvation, which is in Jesus alone. So let's kick off. Is it going to work? It's worked on the laptop, but not on the... Go for it. That's it. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. And we have the account of Jesus' ascension. Now when he had spoken these things... While they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. 
And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. It's almost certain that these two men in white were angels, so they would have been sent from heaven to explain what had just happened. Jesus had been taken into heaven and will come again in like manner. That's good news, by the way. Um, God the Father had sent his son Jesus to earth to do all that was necessary for mankind um, uh, in order for us to be saved. And now Jesus could return to heaven because the job was done. And he will return one day to establish his kingdom. And this is something that could not be done by anyone other than God's chosen Messiah. Add to that fact, uh, in, if you've got the Bible open at Acts 1, in verses 5 and 8, Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would be poured out in a few days, as occurred at the beginning of chapter 2. So surely we must realise that we are dealing with someone who must be divine. Jesus sen said that he would send the Holy Spirit and no mere human can cause God the Holy Spirit to be poured out on those who believe in Jesus as their saviour. None of us could say, you know, to decide to pour the Holy Spirit out. It has to be a member of the Godhead to do that. And Jesus is fully entitled to do that. And before we move on from uh, the reference to Jesus returning to earth, let's just look at Titus chapter 2. Uh, 13 to 14, which says, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Now, the blessed hope that is referred to here is the rapture, the time when Jesus will appear in the air and take his church home to be his bride. But did you note that Jesus is referred to here as our great God and Saviour? He is clearly divine as well as being our Saviour. And we have seen before that Jesus must be both man and God in order to represent both God the Father and us. It doesn't come out very well in the English, but there is only one article, the, in the Greek, um, and that refers to Jesus as both God and Saviour. So the Greek itself confirms that he is both. He is God and Saviour. And then in verse 14, we read that Jesus gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify us for himself. The work of redemption is done, and it's done by Jesus. And he has given us his Holy Spirit to continue that work of purification and sanctification that started when we became Christians. Jesus came as a man, fully human, yet fully God. And he has achieved our salvation in a way that no one else could possibly do. 
everyone else has been tainted by sin, so therefore they would be disqualified and could never redeem us in God's sight. While we're considering Jesus as God, let's look at Romans 9 verse 5, where Paul is discussing the role of Israel, that's the people that God chose and through whom he gave various benefits. And he says, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. If you pick up a Bible version and want to check if it's a good one, this is often a good verse um, to decide if it's a good Bible or not. Uh, Because some versions of the Bible, or some translations of the Bible, water down the deity of Jesus in this verse. Um, But the text does say that Jesus is God and eternally blessed. So that's a facet of deity. And Jesus came through the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, to fulfill all that had been prophesied in the Old Testament. And staggeringly, he came as God, but also as man, in order to purchase our salvation. I would suggest that no one else could do that, either in the past or the future. Well, let's move on. We've got a glorious passage now to look at, uh, Colossians 1, where Paul exalts Jesus to a thoroughly unique position, verses 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, this is Jesus he's talking about, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. This is an amazing paragraph that we could spend a sermon or two on, and it shows us that Jesus must be the only one who can be our Saviour and our Lord. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In other words, he came to earth to show us what God is like. We can't see God the Father and live, at least not this side of eternity. But we do have Jesus through whom we can see what God is like. The reference to firstborn in verse 15 is not firstborn in time, but it refers to Jesus' status or his position of first importance. And Jesus is not a created being, but he is the eternal Son of God who took on human flesh. And Jesus, as God, is the agent of creation, verse 16. All things were created by him, through him, and for him. I don't think any other contender to the role of 
the Messiah, our Saviour, comes anywhere close on that one. And the description here is pretty all-encompassing, showing Jesus' uniqueness and his deity. And I think it rather shrinks any other potential candidates or contenders for our Saviour to being very puny and very ineffective. Then moving on in verse 17, we read, He is before all things, and in him all things consist. And some translations or versions say that in him all things hold together. Jesus is maintaining this universe so that it doesn't fall apart. Now we know at some point in the future, God's going to wrap it all up and make a new heaven and new earth. But at the moment, praise God, Jesus is holding it all together. We're all made up of atoms and molecules and so on. And because of Jesus, they all hang together. The story is told of a group of visitors who were taken on a, on a tour around an atomic laboratory. And the guide explained how all matter was composed of rapidly moving electric particles. And the tourists studied the, the models of molecules and were amazed to learn that matter is made up primarily of space and the sort of little bits that hold it together. And one visitor asked what, it, what holds it all together, but the guide had no answer for that. Because it's Jesus who holds it all together. And I guess the guy, yeah, they didn't know, I didn't want to say it. And while we're on things like atoms, I was reading last night in a book I'm reading that on each of our fingernails there are some trillion atoms. I can't take that in. And they are mostly space, but God's glue holds it together in Jesus. What a God we have. What a saviour we have. This verse in Colossians tells us that it is Jesus who holds it together, as only God can. No other religious leader, no other person can even come close on that one. And then in verse 18, we see that Jesus is the head of the body, head of the church, and he is the firstborn from the dead. There is no church if Jesus isn't the true Messiah because we would have no forgiveness of sins if he is an imposter. And if that's the case, every Christian over the last 2,000 years has been deluded and has believed in vain. But the verse say, says here that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. That means he rose from the dead. He rose so that others can follow. And because of that, we know we are going to be amongst the others that follow. We will have a resurrection body one day. And the complete united witness of the Bible is that Jesus is our only means of salvation through whom we can know eternal life because he has conquered death. Hallelujah. And it gets better in verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness of deity should dwell. And when it's God who is being spoken of as the Father... All the fullness must mean deity. And the word for fullness used in the Greek, it's rather ironic here because 
the word that was used, it was often used by the Gnostics who were false teachers in the first century. And they used it as a term to refer to the sum total of all the divine power and attributes. And Paul here was tackling them on their own ground to show that Jesus truly is the only Messiah because all the fullness of Godness, a Godhead, is in him. Jesus is fully God, fully man, and the only one sent to earth for our salvation. And the fact that God would give his fullness to Jesus shows clearly that Jesus is fully God and fully accepted by God the Father to be our Saviour. And then in verse 20, we see that through Jesus shedding his blood on the cross, Jesus has reconciled all things to himself. And God, God the Father I guess specifically, but the whole Godhead really, by, by his very nature cannot lower his holy and righteous standards to accommodate sinful man, who by God's own word back in the Garden of Eden deserves death because of sin. All things were created by, through and for Jesus and by his death he has reconciled all things to himself. For each individual, the reconciliation is not automatic. It must be received by a clear act of faith in Christ's death in our place. But the potential is there for everyone. And surely it is foolish to reject such a gracious offer. These few verses in Colossians are so rich in confirming for us that Jesus is the unique solution for mankind, provided out of God's love and God's grace, so that all can go free if they will accept this amazing free gift. No one else could offer this. No one else could satisfy God's holy character that must ju judge sin. And no one else could hold the universe together as only God can. It's Jesus. So let's move on. Another lovely passage is Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who, being, in, being the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. A couple of years ago, I did a series of talks on through Hebrews, and when I kicked off, I spent a whole sermon on these four verses, so I won't try and repeat that now. But our purpose today is to show that Jesus is the only solution that God has given to mankind. Once again, we see that Jesus made the worlds. We see again that, that Jesus is God's Son, who has been appointed heir of all things. Jesus is said here to be the express image of God's person, indi indicating perfect deity on the part of Jesus. 
And this is reflected by the fact that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. Just a word, that's enough, such as our Saviour. In essence, we have the same message that we've just seen in Colossians 1. But perhaps we should note in verse 3 that when Jesus had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And when we have the divine Son of God himself dealing with our sins, then surely there can be no need for another, for it would be superfluous. Nor is there any possibility of there being another who could do that for us. Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God. It's a place of authority and a place of privilege. And it's a place, the fact that Jesus is seated there, it's a place of finished business. And God would never have placed Jesus there if there was any shortcoming in what Jesus has done for us. Or even if there was another possible saviour who ought to have that place. Jesus' place there is unique because he is unique as our only saviour and Lord. His work on the cross is sufficient for all mankind for all time and his place at God's right hand confirms that. Let's move on into Acts. When Stephen faced his accusers in Acts 7, he spent quite a long time in Acts 7 recounting Israel's history before the the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling council. And that was a typically Jewish form of defence, of arguing, because it established a significant amount of common ground before the challenge of the person of Jesus was reached. And the crunch came when Stephen saw the glory of God in verses 55 and 56. But he, this is Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What an amazing privilege for Stephen to be able to see into heaven, to see the glory of God. But then within the hour, he would be there in the presence of the Lord, having been stoned to death. But note that amid the glory of God, he saw Jesus standing at God's right hand. He didn't see any other religious leader, but Jesus, the resurrected, glorified Son of God. No one else could have been there. No one else could have endured being in the presence of the glory of God. No one else could have encouraged Stephen as he faced imminent death in the way that Jesus did. When Stephen was stoned, Saul was there, later the Apostle Paul. He was approving of Stephen's killing. And he was there as the Sanhedrin's representative to ensure all went well. They would have someone like that at those sort of occasions. And that's why the stone throwers left their coats at his feet. He wasn't taking part, but he was approving as the official representative. Saul was violently opposed to anyone who was a Christian. And yet in Acts 9, 
Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. Verses 3 to 5. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. It was Jesus who stopped Saul in his tracks. It was Jesus who blinded Saul with the brightness of the light of his presence. And it was Jesus who turned Saul upside down to become Paul the Apostle, who was used so mightily for God. I would suggest that no one else could have made such a difference to someone like Saul or to any life in need of a saviour. And no one else can change the life of each one of us here today as Jesus can. I think it's worth looking at the classic passage in Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We've only got time for a few thoughts from this glorious passage but the word being in verse 6 who being in the form of God, is from the ancient Greek word huparkein, which describes that which is a man in his very essence and which cannot be changed. It describes the part of a man which in any circumstances remains the same. And that's Jesus. The word for form in verse 6 translates the ancient Greek word morphe, and it always signifies a form which truly and fully expresses the being which underlies it. Here we have true God in his very essence, but also man, hallelujah. In other words, Jesus is God, and he didn't stop being God when he took on human flesh. Jesus had, and still has, equality with God the Father. But he didn't cling to the prerogatives and privileges of deity. It's a stunning but glorious truth that Jesus made himself of no reputation, showing deep humility. Just even taking on human flesh was a significant act of humility, even before anything else happened to him, any opposition on earth. But then in addition to that, Jesus humbled himself further. He endured opposition, insults, false accusations, rejection, being spat upon, beaten, tortured, and crucified. He deserved none of that, 
but he took it all for us who deserved God's judgment and wrath. He did it so that we don't have to face the judgment that we deserve. And then we read, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. And once Jesus had paid the price needed for our salvation, God raised Jesus from the dead and has taken him back to glory where he is forever exalted. Hallelujah. That's been done for no other person, no other religious leader, because Jesus alone is God's chosen one to be our deliverer. And the cosmic consequence of that is that every knee will bow to Jesus. And that fact alone, in addition to all the others, makes Jesus utterly unique and standing alone as God's chosen saviour and deliverer. And the issue for each human being is whether they will bow the knee willingly whilst they live on earth, or whether it will be forced upon them at the great white throne judgment as their judgment is decreed. The Son of God had glory and authority in heaven before he came to earth in the person of Jesus. He has been proved trustworthy and faithful by his humility and his sacrifice. And now his glory is seen and vindicated and remains forever. Let's move on. 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 to 21. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. We've seen in previous studies how the Old Testament sacrifices all pointed forwards to Jesus as the ultimate Lamb of God. For people on earth, silver and gold is precious, but it can still wear out or become tarnished. So, uh, and Jesus was the, the fulfillment of the sacrificial lambs that had to be defect-free. And he, Jesus, had no blemish no defect. So only he ever could, could ever be the one who could die in our place because no one else is defect-free. But note that Jesus was foreordained before the foundation of the world. God planned it even before the world was created. God knew that sin would come into the world and he made provision for it even before it all came into being and sin arrived. But the coming of Jesus was no plan B. It was always ordained by God to be the unique and potentially universal solution to a universal problem for mankind. And once again in this passage, we have mention of Jesus, God raising Jesus from the dead and giving him glory. And that has been done for no other potential candidate for the role because there is no other real candidate. 
and the fact that Jesus is a universal solution to man's problem of sin is brought out in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write to you, that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So in verse 2 we have it, Jesus is the propitiation. If you don't know the long word there, it means the, uh, the means of appeasing God's holy and righteous nature that can't look upon sin. So he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, for those who will willingly accept what he has done for them. He's also died for the sins of those who refuse. It's not effective for those who refuse, but the, the, the problem is dealt with. So the barrier of sin has been removed. So the issue for every person becomes, what do you think of Jesus? Will you accept him as the only saviour or not? Jesus is in the presence of God the Father as our advocate, our defence lawyer, if you like, arguing the case for those who choose to believe in what Jesus has done for them. And he never loses a case, hallelujah. But if Jesus is the means of propitiation that God has given, then there cannot honestly be another. Why would and how could God's righteous nature be satisfied by a selection of potential saviours. God chose his own and only son to take on human flesh, to die in our place, and no one else could ever qualify to satisfy God's character. The enemy of our souls tries to persuade us that there are many roads to God, but that misses the point of God's holiness and the huge dilemma that man faces before God. Pretenders to the role of the saviour are types of antichrist. And we know that there will be coming before long the ultimate antichrist who will claim to be Christ and will be filled with evil instead of the true Christ, Jesus, who is full of righteousness. God will have the victory over all his enemies and that victory will be glorious. But that's straying into our subject for next time, the final one of Jesus, why Jesus in the future. There are many other amazing, glorious passages that I could, from Acts and the Epistles, I could have picked, but time has gone. But what I hope you've seen, though, is that as with the rest of the Bible, there is only one person who stands out as being the only one who could possibly be God's chosen Messiah and Saviour, and that's Jesus Christ. The whole message of the Bible would make no sense if Jesus were not the one. But the, the message of the Bible does make marvellous sense. It's glorious in its riches and in its truth. And our Bible is a wonderful gift from God to mankind so that we know our lost state before him, but also so that we can know for certain how to be saved and have the assurance of salvation. And that's a beautiful gift. There is no need for any of us to have any doubt as Christians because God has explained the gospel so clearly in his word 
And the core of the gospel is that Jesus Christ took our place on the cross, but rose again to show that he has conquered sin, death, and the devil. We have so much to thank God for. And as we'll see next time, the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus Christ, your Son. Thank you that in just these few verses we've looked at today, we see that Jesus is unique. He is the only candidate who is legitimate for the role of Messiah and Saviour. Lord, we pray that you would just drill that into our minds, into our hearts, that it would transform the way we view the world, the way we see each other as believers, see the others as unbelievers, see the, the week we have in front of us, that we would live for Christ. And that, Lord, you would change people's hearts through our witness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.